This is the Investor Frame Podcast with me, Paul Sparks. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. This is the Investor Frame Podcast. I'm here with a very special guest, uh, Stephanie Betters. Stephanie is someone I've looked up to for a very long time. I've been watching her journey um, into real estate. She's someone... Oh, hold on just a second. Here we go. My... Uh, sound was on the other one was wrong um so anyways stephanie and i have come to know each other through a mutual group collective genius um and she's doing some incredible stuff i wanted to give her a chance to to introduce those uh, to her to those that may not know her so um welcome stephanie it's it's extremely uh, exciting to have you on here um i feel fortunate to uh to have you talking to to me and my my team here so um, would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and you know what your journey into real estate looks like? How much time do you have? No. <laughs> okay, so briefly, uh, so I'm Stephanie Betters. My background is actually in medicine. Um, I never intended to go down this path. This is kind of a, an, accident, an accidental but really lovely journey uh, that I find myself on. Um, long story short, uh, my husband and I met in undergrad in Binghamton, New York. Um, you know, we got married right out of college, had nothing like, you know, $200,000 in debt is what we had. Mm -hmm. And I was really just kind of on this path of like, I'm just going to be a, you know, a nurse and a mom. And, you know, I don't know, I didn't really dream past that. You know, it was my husband who really challenged us to dream bigger. Um, and what he decided, you know, what he decided, we decided, but he really encouraged like, Hey, we don't have any money. It's 2007. Let's buy one of those houses everybody talks about that, like, you know, look like crap and fix it up and, you know, make some money. And I was like, that was not my plan. Um, but he convinced me to buy this foreclosed house, which we got for almost nothing in 2007, think, thankfully, in this little town outside of Binghamton. And uh, we moved into it, fixed it up and flipped it uh, and then went to grad school. Right. So we flipped, we flipped it. We sold this thing in 09. Q1 of 09, right before a really, really crash in upstate New York. Wow. Um, IBM was a major employer where we were flipping and they laid people off literally two weeks after we sold it and the market crashed. So super fortunate on that timing there. Um, and then at that time, you know, we we're like, great, I think we made like $60,000 on that deal, which was like a whole year salary for me as a nurse at that point. And I was like, well, okay, you have my attention. This is a decent idea, right? Um, you know, over the course of those two years that we were fixing up and, and flipping that house and living in it, you know, we were working and I decided that I wanted to go back to school to be a nurse practitioner. And my husband, Zach, it was like, you know, he was kind of going back and forth between med school and being a physician assistant. So he decided, you know, he wants to be a physician assistant. So great. We sold that house. We applied to a, to a university on Long Island, New York, um, Stony Brook. We put that money in a CD and we went to school for the next two years. After that, we decided, okay, we're ready to do this again. We're graduating. Where are we going to do this? It wasn't Long Island. Um, Long Island's a very difficult market. It's very expensive. Again, we had nothing. We had the CD and that was like it. Uh, and all this debt that we hadn't touched yet. We deferred it all because we went back to school. So mm -hmm. we were looking for a market that would support the real estate industry to do this again. Um, and our medical careers, which we just then took more debt out to, to fulfill. And really the whole plan at that point, what I had subscribed to, this was the idea, was we were just gonna buy a few rentals. Like that was the idea. And I didn't wanna live in a house again as we renovated it. That was kind of my, my line in the sand. I was like, that was really stressful. I have like sheetrock 
PTSD. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point we had had a child. Now we had a firstborn and I was like, we'll do it, but I just don't want to live in it again. So we need to have enough cushion that we can buy a place for ourselves and then also invest and figure that out. So, you know, a lot of, anal- a lot of analysis um, went into this and we d- chose the Charlotte market. Um, we had been here in the airport you know, that was it as far as personal exposure. And both of our parents said like, yeah, well, if you guys move there, we'll retire there one day. So like check on the personal side, Mm -hmm. you know, there was lots of great career opportunities here for NPs and PAs and the real estate market looked like it was really perfectly positioned at that time. So this is 2011 when we moved here. Um, We, again, fear is a big thing for me. Um, I still to this day battle fear. Um, although thankfully I've gotten some stamina to deal with it, but, uh, anyway, we were trying to figure out how to re- to start the company down here. We bought a house for us to live in. We bet on the appreciation of that house, um, and then took that money, which was 60, uh, by the time we had all of a sudden done moving, buying the house furniture, blah, blah, blah. We had that it was taken up. So the home equity line of credit we got two years later was like $15,000, $20,000. We took that out and started our company with it, started fixing and flipping properties, um, as we all know, it takes a long time to gather up the money to buy a conventional, to get a conventional loan on a rental. So we got into flipping so that we could have more cash and then put more, you know, put that into, into more rental acquisitions. But then, you know, that takes a long time and that's a whole process. We started building a team to run our flips. And then, you know, we got to capacity with our flips um, and our contractors and we needed a wholesale. Wholesaling was wonderful, right? Like that's quicker money. We got, our, t- our teams got busy. So that was great. You know, we merged with a with a partner in 2018 to bring new builds into into the fold. And you know, we were started looking. We were doing wholesaling, new builds, and uh, new construction. January 2020, we looked at the portfolio, what we were doing, and the team that we had, and everything that we built up to that point, and decided, you know, the easiest thing for us to do, the most streamlined thing to do, is to do new build, construction, and wholesale. So mm-hmm. January 2020, we decided to do that on. Um, in 2019 is really where our systems kind of collided. Um, we had this big system explosion, essentially. I was the COO of our company at that point. Um, my husband was a CEO. I, we were spending $60,000 a month on marketing and I couldn't measure. Crazy. Yeah. Like, I couldn't measure it. We were using Podio. I couldn't run a report that was accurate. Like I was then paying VAs to scrub data to put it somewhere else. And we were having all these problems and like spending all this money. And I just, I felt like completely out of control. All these disparate systems like Google Sheets, phone systems, mm-hmm. you know, CRM here, like dealing with return mail manually, like all this garbage, right? And so- and Most people have experienced that, right? If you've gone from the, you know, what does Gary Harper say, right? Startup phase, yeah. then to perseverance, then to viability. That, that move from perseverance to viability is is what gets a lot of us, yeah. right? Um, I'm actually, I was pulling up, uh, there was a quote that you made me think of. We call this uh, inside of our community, we call this the rule of three and 10. And so it's a guy named Hiroshi Makitani Rakuten who started Rakuten. And he says, every time a company triples or hits an order of magnitude of 10, everything breaks. Preach. Everything breaks. So like what got you from startup, you know, to perseverance is absolutely not going to get you from perseverance to viability or to scalability or to the exit. Um, it sounds like you saw that. 
hundred percent. Yeah. I wish I'd put that quote ahead of time because it felt very abnormal at the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah, that, that hurt. It quite literally like exploded. We really got to a point where we were spending money and had no idea what we could expect in return. And we were doing things because we had heard it worked for other people. And then we had no idea how to measure it and decide if that worked for us. You know, well, like, and what's that feel like, you know, because I think a lot of people have in the last year, I mean, we saw such a run. I'm, I'm still fairly new to this business, right? A couple years in and I'm, I experienced that last year. Um, and I imagine a lot of people who are probably listening to that have experienced that. What was the, the emotions that, that you're experiencing during that time of like everything scattered all over the place? Like, how do I get it organized? Yeah, it was really, really intense chaos, fear. And like hustle, you know, I mean, we just didn't stop working. It would be one o'clock in the morning and my husband and I would be in our office trying to figure stuff out. It was nauseating, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, It's like one foot, one step forward and you slide back too. It's like, you can't see progress. And I think as our human brain is wired, like we need to be able to see progress. Otherwise you just, you get deflated and you just start like, ah. You know, you have that give up moment. I mean, most of the people that I know that have made it in real estate have experienced that give up moment at least once, most of them two or three times, right? Uh, um, I've had that in like the 60s. In fact, yeah. I actually used to track that. <laughs> How many times I wanted to quit, like ridic- like really quit. Not like, I don't want to mm-hmm. do it. Like, I literally can't do this anymore. I'm going to quit. It's, we're in the 60s for sure. I stopped counting because now I just don't quit, right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it felt... It felt horrific at the time and it felt very alone because everybody's Instagram, Facebook's journey is so glamorous. And we're looking at, we're trying to stare our truth in the face. And we're like, we're working so hard. I can't work any harder. Like I literally could not have worked harder, you know? So the effort was there, the drive, the passion, the heart, all that was there. And it wasn't like, I just didn't understand our result. We were making money, but I still felt like we, we, we couldn't pay ourselves what we were worth. You know, right. so it was just such this terrible cycle that money was coming in and so much of it was going out and I just didn't understand it. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't work any harder. So because I couldn't do more, like if you're working 16 hours a week, you know, Monday through Friday at the real estate company, and then I'd work 72 hours straight, you know, from Friday to Monday Crazy. Uh, at, the, at the hospital, like I literally couldn't do anymore. So I kind of acknowledge that part. Like I am doing the max. Like, I don't think I can improve literally anything I'm doing. <laughs> and I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but just like the, the, the effort was there. I knew then I needed better systems, right? Like I needed the better information to extract an idea and then a problem and then come up with a solution. So, well, and because the problem really isn't, it's a matter of resource allocation, Hundred percent, right? What are you spending your time to? We have a phrase that we say, like, never water the weeds. And, you know, I have this vision of a, of a garden and it's like, we're just pouring more and more and more water onto it. But there's all these weeds that are sucking up all of these resources. And you're just, you're, it's, you know, another way to say it is you got leaks in your bucket. Yep. Right. And, and that is what typically has led in the past for me. It sounds like the same thing for you to this anxiety around, I can't do any more. Right. It's like we have to realize as small business owners, our resources are scarce. We're not Fortune 500 companies that can just throw $100 million at a marketing campaign and, oh, it doesn't work. That's fine. At least we got some information. We'll, we'll pivot. We don't have that luxury. We have a finite amount of time, finite amount of energy, finite amount of money. 
and we're all in, right? Like that's right. There is no backup. Yeah. 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 So you know, systems explosion at that point, and you know, a really pivotal moment uh, for me was first of all, first of all, in 2018 when we merged, that was really wonderful, and I met Gary Harper then, and his business acumen kind of was I was able to translate everything I learned in the medical field which was my whole life, you know, the, all that algorithmic thinking and taking care of people and data, you know, it's all data and medicine too. Like, what are your lab values? What are your vitals? Like, you know, kind of taking that and translating what, what was relevant there into business and kind of bringing the whole picture together was very enlightening. Um, and then in 2019, the next big pivotal moment was really taking a hard look at our systems and how can other things help us? Like, where are we just absolutely wasting resources and time and how can we leverage technology to help us? Mm-hmm. Like, let's get out of this, like, and I don't mean no offense to this, but this like guru led marketing metric where like people just sell you stuff and you don't quite even understand it, but like people who appear to be doing well are doing it. So I'm going to do it too. You know, mm-hmm. like oh, yeah. I, I need to break out of that. And that's where I was like, you know, what's the number one CRM in the world? Like, I'm just going to go do that. And that is indisputably Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Like, no one can. Well, I that. used it for a long time before I got into this, which is why I was like, wait a second. She figured out how to get Salesforce to work for us real estate investors. Yeah. Um, so that was amazing. But no. So, so continue. Tell us more about that journey because Salesforce is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Yeah. So that was you know, so I didn't really even know what to expect there. I thought, okay, I'm going to buy this thing. It's probably going to be thirty, forty thousand $40,000. I'm just going to do it. I don't even know anymore. Right. Like I'm kind of desperate. Um, so I went through their entire sales process, which by the way, is like seven or eight calls. They're all an hour plus long, <laughs> like, you know, with discovery after discovery, they don't understand our industry, right? Like mm-hmm. they didn't get it. So the very final call is, was this pitch call, right? they have this really beautiful deck of slideshow and they have all these people on the call and like, Oh man, Mm -hmm. this is going to be bad, whatever this is. Right. And so the pitch ended up being, you know, a hundred thousand dollars for the phase one build, which would take six months and then you'll log in and then we'll build phase two. And I, it wasn't pretty like my reaction. I was flabbergasted. Like I completely, completely took me off guard with that kind of presentation, with that timeline, with that price tag, with the whole thing. And I'm kind of desperate at this point for a solution. And I could not believe that's what they presented. And clearly, obviously that's out of all of our reach. Like I I could probably tell you three people that could afford that in our industry. Right. Um, Certainly not us with 10 employees at the time, probably. And, you know, certainly not that budget for six months. And that's phase one. Like, this is going to cost a million dollars. I can't do this. So anyway, I flipped out on this call. Like I'm not, I wish I had the recording now because it would be funny, but I absolutely lost it on that call and thought that to call them all crazy and that this is insane and how could anyone afford this? And, you know, at the end I was like, I'm just going to do it myself, you know? And then they all laughed at me and they're like, oh, okay, that's cute. You know? And I'm like, oh man, now I'm really going to do it. You know? So I got off that call, just infuriated. Um, I tried to look at like how I, how I can teach myself how to, how to code on Salesforce. Those courses are like college courses. Like you can spend 5k on a course to teach you, or you can, you know, try to dabble around their, their stuff for a year and figure it out yourself. So I bought a, I bought a really old, like 20 year course that from Salesforce that like didn't cost very much money and taught a little bit of the basics of the platform. And then I just built it myself. It took me approximately three months, like straight of that's all I did. 
was try to figure this thing out and build it. And then we launched it for Better Path Homes, the company onboarded everybody and like, okay, we had it. Like I had data, I had like, it was like amazing from week one, really. It was such a, such a game changer from Podio and other, these other systems I was using. Um, and then, you know, a month or so after we launched, maybe a couple months later, Salesforce followed up with me and, you know, the account executive and she's like, Hey, you know, how'd it go? Like, did you give up? Do you want to like revisit this thing? And, and I was like, Oh, I did it. I, I built, oh, I built it. it. Yeah. And she was like, what do you mean you built it? I'm like, yeah, I did it. I, you know, I launched and, and she's like, well, wow. Uh, can I see it? And I was like, I guess I'll show it to you. You take me off your drip sequence. Right. I'll right. <laughs> so, so I did, we did a quick zoom call, showed her what I built. And she was like, Oh my God, can I come visit you? I was like, in person, you know, <laughs> she's like, yeah, I want to, I want to come up to Charlotte and, and meet you and, and see your office and like talk about this. So I was like, uh, okay, yeah, bring some coffee, you know? So she comes and she's like, I think you have something here. I want to introduce you to the partnership team at Salesforce. And, you know, if you think other people would want this, I think you should do this. And I was like, well, I, I didn't intend on doing this for anybody else. Like, I honestly did not, you know, I was mm -hmm. really just trying to solve this for myself. And she's like, I really, I think you should try it. And I was like, all right, let's see what this is about. Right. So I went through this whole process with Salesforce and again, not really quite sure how serious to take it because I didn't know if anyone else would want this really, you know? So I really, I really felt when I entered into negotiations with Salesforce that I had nothing to lose. Right. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work or not. So if it's going to work, it needs to be the ideal situation. So I'm just going for like absolute ideal. If I don't get it, like I'm out, you know, what a great way to negotiate. It was great. Cause I really, I solved my problem. I never anticipated this. So we went, I went really hard and I was like, this is the price. This is what we need in this, in this type of package. Um, this is the access we need and this is how much it needs to be, you know? So got it down to 50 bucks a user, which, you know, is $150 normally per, per user uh, at Salesforce. And then a pretty, pretty, I would, I think you'd agree, very affordable, like, uh, you know, site licensing to get, give people access to this. Certainly nowhere close to six figures. It depends mm -hmm. on our pricing. Actually, we just renegotiated again. Our contract depends now um, the length of time that you commit, like if it's one year, if it's two year agreements. So the cheapest now you can do is every two years, $5,000. Like Nice. Um, like, it's That's incredible. Of, it's unheard of for Salesforce. And they were like, I don't know, went through all the levels of approval and we got it approved. Like they took the deal and off we went, you know? And um, even then I was just kind of nervous to tell people about it. Cause now this is like my blood, sweat and tears. And you know, the, the CRM industry and the real estate space is kind of scorched earth, you know, like there's been a lot of stuff out there. Um, and I was kind of worried about being another another cog in that wheel. Um, so I only told a couple of my friends about it and they tried it and they liked it. Do you need to talk about it? And again, I'm like, I don't know. I'm mm -hmm. kind of into this other stuff. Right. Um, and anyway, in October at the end of, at the end of 2020 is when I started publicly talking about it. And then it just really, it exploded. It's mm -hmm. amazing. We've, we, you know, have nearly 4,000 users at this point. Um, I've made a huge impact in the industry. We still have so much to do. Like, oh my gosh, we have so much to do still, but it, it took off and I, I could not be more humbled, more honored. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's truly my, my passion piece here. And I, I kind of realized along the way that my, 
favorite thing, my core genius, my impact uh, fulfillment thing that I'm looking for is, is really centered on operations and efficiency. That's really in the end, what changed my life and, you know, in my business. Um, and I, I'm really passionate about creating a tool and tools that help other people do the same. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty freaking cool, you know? So anyway, the, what ended up happening is in January, 2020, when I was alluding to that decision we made about, you know, all the different verticals we had in our real estate business and, and streamlining that, that was also the time that I was stepping down as a COO uh, in the company and letting and promoting one of our um, uh, project management, director of project management to take my role over primarily because I needed some boundaries. Like my husband and I were CEO, CEO for so many years. And it's like, it's time now that, you know, tough. I'm your wife, you know, and mm -hmm. you're my husband and we're not business partners on that, in that level, that intimate level of business partnership where I'm like hiding from him, you know, in the house, like, don't tell me another idea. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, the timing kind of worked out, right? Like now I'm a, I'm an advisor in my, in my own company. I've exited, I'm in the owner's box and the company's running. My husband is only the CEO. Everything else is hired out. And uh, I had kind of the mind space to dedicate to this thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, fast forward to now, I'm the CEO of, of this company and two others. And uh, my husband is the CEO of, of Better Path Homes. And what we, what, we, what we do with that profit is we buy multifamily real estate and large multifamily and build our rental portfolio, which was the original plan like 10 years ago. So mm -hmm. now we're kind of back to that and we're able to do it on a, on a much faster scale and uh, grow our passive income so that, you know, we have that legacy stuff to, you know, to leave behind to our kids, which we have three now. So congrats. Well, a super long story packed up into like 20 minutes, but. Well, I knew that story, but I'm <laughs> so glad you told it because uh, a lot of people I'm sure can resonate with what you just said. There's there's a phrase that you say as part of uh, being with Left Main that like I absolutely love, and I think this is where I I was like, ooh, she 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 thinks like I do. You say I eat problems for breakfast, right? And that's exactly what you did. I mean, first of all, not many people can code, right? And and can code in something that they've never used before. So huge testament to your technical abilities to be able to come in and actually code that, make something useful to yourself. But then it became such a, uh, I, I, I keep thinking about this, this jump from perseverance to viability, to scalability, to, you know, to succession and exiting the business. That's such a, a well thought out progression there. Um, I don't believe it's possible. And maybe you can tell me that I'm not there yet in my business where I'm in the owner's box, right? I'm, I'm working on moving really from perseverance to viability you could argue where we're at exactly. And it's like, sometimes it feels like we're, we're there. And then it's like, Oh, we backslid a little bit. Um, but without data, without, how can you make good decisions? Right. It, it, it comes back to speculation as business owners and visionaries. A lot of us have a, a gearing towards more of the CEO visionary, you know, Oh my God, that's such a term that's thrown around. Like, I'm the visionary. I'm not supposed to do that. I need to hire somebody else to come in and do that. That's not what I do well. It's like, well, guess what? There's trade-offs to saying that, right? There's trade-offs to that. It means your business is probably never going to move out of the perseverance phase, right? Even if you're uh, bringing on that COO, if you're not setting them up in an environment to actually make good decisions, 
they're going to just step in and scale more chaos that you've just created. I've observed that in my business. That's what we're fighting to get out of right now. It's like, crap, I, I, did, I did this. I knew I was going to do it. I said I wasn't going to do it. And then I did it, right? And so I got in, I, I found uh, Left Main because I was like, you know what? She has built something that is going to help me get from where I am now to where I want to go. And what I found is making that jump into something like Left Main it's not like an Excel spreadsheet. It's not like those off the shelf, out of the box CRMs. You want to stay in that viability phase? Those might be a good product to do that. If you want to build something that can scale, that you can exit, you've got to have better accountability for every aspect of your business. Um, would you agree? I would totally agree. You know, I think, um, I think that in order to be a good business owner, and I guess we can all define that in different ways, but for me, being a good business owner means that uh, I'm able to, to delegate, I can be the owner and not the operator all the time, right? So um, in order to be a successful CEO, business owner, et cetera, you need to be innovative and have really good ideas, right? That is one component of it. But the secondary component that I think everybody really underestimates is you have to be able, you have to be able to predict well, right? Like that's about, so what we see out there are all these people who want to be a visionary, right? They say they're a visionary, they have ideas, but they have no idea how to predict. Yeah. The reason why they can't predict is they don't have any information, right? Or they have 2% of the of available information and are making decisions based on that. And then they fail because they didn't have enough information to properly predict. Mm -hmm. So how do you predict? You have to have data. You have to have some sort of subset of some sort of information to then draw a conclusion off of it, right? Mm -hmm. So not only do you have to like reflect back on what happened and say, okay, this direct mail piece didn't work because, and I know that because we got 10 phone calls when we typically get 200. Or industry standard, if you have, don't even have what you typically get, like talk to people, how many, what do you get? What is your response percentage? How many did you send versus what you got, right? Like measure something and then say, did that work or did it not work? Like, and then you say, okay, well, I learned something from that piece, right? Like, you know, we're going to try now handwritten mail, right? Mm -hmm. For example. And then that response rate was, was bigger. And then you got more leads. So then you can predict and say, okay, if we send more mail, and we have that same percentage, I can predict we're gonna get X amount of leads, which is going to equal X amount of deals. So not only can you predict like, you know, what kind of staffing needs that you have, that you're gonna to have to have with those incoming leads, but you can also predict what your revenue is going to be, right? Like you can't just wing it. Like right. you can't have this kind of money and wing it. And this is a, that's a very fine new example, but I think a lot of people, especially when they're first getting a hold of data, it's all centered around marketing, right? So that those kinds of things are really important. And then you can get deeper, like what's your cost per lead? What's your cost per phone call? What's your cost per appointment? Blah, blah, blah. Well, let me add this too, because when you say predictability, you know, I was, I'm an industrial engineer. When I hear that, I think reliability, right? Yes. What's the reliability of the system? And, and let me submit an example that, that I think of when I think of reliability. It's like, okay, let's say you go and you get in your car. And I'm going to drive somewhere across town. And that car is 90% reliable. 
sounds pretty good. It's getting an A. Yeah. It's like, okay. So you're saying that one time out of 10, that car is going to break down and I'm not going to get to where I need to go. I would never drive that car. If it was 95% reliable, that means one out of 20. So like once a month, you're breaking down. Still wouldn't drive that car. 99% reliable. I still wouldn't do that. That means three times out of 100 or, you know, three times out of the year, probably my car is breaking down. Reliability is imperative. And, and, and it's, a, it's synonymous with predictability. So like if you can't predict the revenue in your business, how much time are you going to need to dedicate? Like one day it's like, oh, I, I spend two hours on this business. And the next day there's fires everywhere. And I got to you know, spend 12, 15, 16 hours a day working to put these fires out. How is that predictable at all? It's not, right? If you want to build an actual business that when you get in the car, you know you're going to be able to get there. High reliability. Um, you have to have your numbers. It's just, there is no, there's no way around it. And so that leads me to my next question which is, and, and we use this phrase inside of my, you know, my community and groups called solvable problem. Yeah. It's like, you have to have a solvable problem for your business, for your life, for that matter. But let's talk about, you know, your business. It's like, what is it that you're optimizing for? Because yeah. as business owners, we have a tendency to try to maximize for everything. I want to be good at uh, cold calling. I want to be good at direct mail. We're going to get our SEO and our digital presence up. And of course, all that's geared towards marketing because that's where most of us are looking for. Yeah. But it's like you're you're trying. It's a, another way of saying that is you try to catch five rabbits at a, at a time. You're going to catch none. Like we don't have unlimited resources. We have to optimize for the most important thing. You have to be able to tie that back to your solvable problem. So I'm curious, what were you optimizing for? Right? Is it is it revenue? Is it leads? Is it appointments? Like what what did you what did you optimize for? Well, in the end, it has to be revenue, right? right? Like, I don't care how hard you're working. If it's not resulting in revenue, you don't have a business, right? right? So you always have to optimize for revenue and then reverse engineer. But I want to just go back quickly to one of your, the point that you just made about reliability and predictability. Have you ever uh, read the book Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke? No, I haven't. Oh, man, you have. That's a good one. What's uh, it called? Thinking in Bets? Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. So she was a, a World Series poker player. I like it. And, uh, so she she wrote her book essentially like how do you analyze decisions? How do you make decisions? Um, and and you know make a bet right? Um, and the way she plays poker, obviously industries have different reliability and predictability um, benchmarks. Like for example, uh, an airplane industry, like you got to be a hundred percent sure three hundred people die, right? So you have zero. Like you have to be that six sigma black belt like you know, high reliability type company. And there's obviously a range there and then there's us. And I think it's okay that we're not 100% certain or we're not 100% reliable. We just need to know where we are on the spectrum of that. Like, so Annie will talk about, she'll make a bet if she's 51% sure. Mm. And I thought that was really liberating for me to hear because I am seeking certainty all the time and that can be debilitating and lead to a lot of analysis paralysis. We just need to know, you know, which direction we think something is going to run in and then how are we going to know that that's the correct decision to make like even 51% of the time? And then how do we evaluate that that decision was correct? I think that is very liberating too. Let's just try to go to 51% first, especially when we're starting to build and then get good at being right 
51% of the time and then moving up, moving up, moving up because you can't get 100% certainty every single time. You're going to lose money on a house. You're going to have an employee that interviewed amazing and then just bombed or just screwed you over, right? Like it's going to happen. So I think first you just need to figure out how, how much information do you need in order to arrive at, at a certain, whatever predetermined level of certainty that you are capable of making a decision in, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, like if I look back at that percentage, we were operating at like a 10% certainty. Like I had no information, right? So I had no way of even knowing that is totally, it was totally unacceptable for me. I want to be at 90% to hundred percent, but I'm like, I'll settle for like 60% like I, and then start there right now. I operate in a much higher level of certainty, but still not even probably 90%. I mean, I, I'm going to make my best guess, educated guess based on the information that I have. And I still don't always predict accurately, but now at least I know how to, how to evaluate and then how to like retroactively evaluate. Well, so, and one more point too, is you, you, you are like, what about the downside? So you, you, you've insinuated like, Hey, with the airline industry, people can die if we're wrong. Right. right? So another thing, what I love about this, like, I'm, I'm excited to get this book thinking in bets yeah. is I think a lot about, well, yeah, 51%. If I can, if I can increase my confidence level of my decision, um, that's good. But I also need to pay attention to what's the downside of me being wrong. Right. right? Um, Cause if it's like, I think of, I mean, this maybe sound morbid. I think of Russian roulette. It's like, yeah. well, Hey, I'm, I'm 80, you know, there's, there's five bullets in the chamber and you know, 80% of the time you're going to be right. But if you're wrong, you're dead. So I'm not willing to make that bet because the downside is too high. Right. So well, I think sure. that oftentimes business owners will go all in, they're making these bets, but they're not considering the downside. They're only looking at, well, here's the upside. If I'm right, this is what we're going to get. Right. So and confidence level has to come in my mind with an also in a, an attunement to like, what is the actual downside here if I'm wrong? Right. And that's what I love about this concept is like, it inherently makes you consider that too. Right. Because then there's all these like sub situations. You're like, okay, I think that this, this is going to result from this action. Right. Okay. If it, if it doesn't result in that action, what other actions would it result in? Like, what do I need to look out for essentially? So it inherently makes you consider different strategies instead of being like, well, I don't know. This is what I think we should do. And like, there we go. Let's try <laughs> it. Let's and then two years it. later, your business goes to, you know, you're out of business because you, you didn't consider the downside right. and you didn't understand that there's actually a confidence level here. You know, we make bets like in marketing. That's all we're doing. We're making bets. Right. Exactly. Right. If you can't figure out how to improve your ability to guess, then you're not going to be in this business long. Right, exactly. So I think looking at it in that way, what data do I need to come to a reasonable conclusion that I can then evaluate later? I mean, that just that little mindset shift is, I think, critically important. And then I think what it also does then, back to your original question, was it presents a problem, right? Like if you didn't predict correctly or... If you got hit in the face with a surprise or you have an obstacle that is standing in the way of your resolution, now you are, you as an owner are dealing only with problems, mm -hmm. right? Which we all want to say like, is a bad thing, but no, that's what we're good at. Like now, single variable problems too, right? Yes, 
distill it down into what is the obstacle? Like, what really is the issue here? Like I sent a mail piece out and my, I didn't get any leads. Okay, well, did the phone ring? No, the phone didn't ring. This phone number didn't get hit at all. Did we put a number on the postcard? Right? And you're like, oh no. Oh man, no, I did that no, once. Right? So, right? I've done that too. We've all done that, right? So then you're like, okay, the problem, we're not getting any leads. Okay, that's not the real, the real problem was didn't put the number for anybody to call on the postcard, yeah. right? So right. like, then you're solving problems and then you're actually moving the needle. So it's, it's quite challenging to do. That's a very obvious example, but you know, these are complex situations and people are involved and all these different variables. So it gets difficult to narrow it down to, to an actual issue, but I would encourage everybody to not be afraid to do that. Like, don't be afraid to look under the hood and try to like distill down that what the actual problem is, because I could guarantee you if you've had the gall to start your own company and there are people who believed in you enough to work for you, you'll be able to figure it out. Like, mm -hmm. just don't be afraid to distill it down into that, into that level. And, uh, you know, sometimes you got to give yourself your own pep talk and, and, uh, convince yourself that you're, that you're capable of doing it. And you know, part of that little slogan is that for me, like I eat problems for breakfast, right? Like I'm not going to be afraid of problems. I'm not going to be discouraged by problems because they're here anyway. I'm just going to wake up. I'm going to eat them for breakfast, right? I'm going to eat that, that elephant one bite at a time. Right. And mm -hmm. it's my little, my little slogan, but it's also my reminder to not be afraid of that problem or be afraid to seek the true problem. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Let me ask you about, this is a problem that I have. I'm extremely biased. Um, everyone's biased. Everyone has biases. Mm -hmm. And biases don't really serve us very well when we're analyzing data. Um, I have a tendency to shoehorn that data into what I want it to be. I tend to see it. Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a story yeah. uh, with the data. I have to fight that constantly. And, and, and I have this phrase that I, that I note to myself all the time. There's a big difference between optimism and expectations, yeah. right? When you're attaching, uh, I, I may be optimistic. Like I, I would like for this to happen, but oftentimes that, that can get us detached from the reality of the situation. And so when we're gathering data, what are some ways I think that people can reduce their biases, can let the data tell the story, not your, you know, human emotions. And like, you got these anxieties. I got to make sure I can get this lender paid off. And man, we're, we haven't got any deals in, you know, this month. Like, so we have a tendency to be really optimistic and it's like, no, this is good. Let's keep going. But oftentimes the data is not really saying that you're just saying that, um, and I think that's obviously the power of left main is, you know, not necessarily more data is better, but more quality data, the right data is better. And, you know, I'm trying to get to the point where I don't make emotional decisions based off of data that I see. It informs my behavior based on what's there. So um, maybe talk a little bit about that bias that people have a tendency to, you know, be optimistic about the outcome that they want and how that could be detached from the actual reality of what's being shown to you. Well, I think the the foundation of bias is lack of information across business, personal, all kinds of stuff, right? You just don't have exposure to other perspectives or information. So yeah. then you develop your own bias that you then further support because that's all you know or all you see. So when you look at data, like so let's talk about your business and setting a quarterly goal as an example. 
you're like, I want to do a million dollars this year. Okay. I need to get a thousand leads this quarter. Okay. Well, how many quarters did you generate last, last quarter? Uh, how many leads did you generate last quarter? A hundred. Okay. How are you going to do a thousand this quarter? Right. Like, okay. And, and I don't want to, you know, downplay like that, that like fire in your belly and like, we can do it and there, you know, anything is defeatable. Right. But there is also that reasonable aspect. So how about we set a goal 10% higher this quarter than last quarter? That's like super achievable, wouldn't you say? You did a hundred, can you do 10 more? Yeah, I can definitely do 10 more. Okay, let's set that as the goal. That's the baseline that we're gonna do. And let's try to, let's try to get above and beyond it. Right? And don't add five other goals. Right, like just choose really reasonable goals because if you hit those things over time, that's where you make the money. Like that's where the millions are. Um, the other stuff is just a pipe dream. Like, is it possible? Yeah. I mean, there's, it's possible, but it's super unlikely. So don't set yourself up for something that's disappointing. And then you always feel like you're chasing your tail, you know? And, and I think looking at that information over time and like really what your history is of what you've been able to accomplish, you'll see that growth over time. You'll see what percentage increase you have quarter over quarter, year over year. And that'll help guide what is possible for the future too. So it starts to defeat your own bias because you're forced to look at what you've actually been able to accomplish over time. And if that doesn't help, or if you don't have that information, then you need a second party to help look at it with you. Um, and I have a person like that, that her name is Heather. She's our CFO. And she, I mean, she thinks I'm crazy, right? Like I, and I, in general, I'm pretty conservative, but she's like, okay, that's your Stephanie lens. This is the Heather lens, right? Mm -hmm. so this is what you want to do, but this is what I think we can do. And then generally it's somewhere in the middle, right? And then I always feel so much better because then I'm actually accomplishing a goal. I'm like, yes, I accurately predicted and we did it. Great. Mm -hmm. Even if it wasn't, you know, a million leads this quarter, it was, you know, a little bit more than, than last quarter. That like incremental growth, I mean, 10 years later, I have a life that I never thought I would ever have. Like, and I've blown my mind, you know, 10 times over, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think that, that that has really helped. Like past performance, helping to predict future performance, you know? Yeah. And you can't do that without information. Well, and how about the, how about like the trap of, I just bucket all of it, the, all of this into FOMO. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned fear earlier in this conversation. One of the things that I've noticed about there's, there's, I, I think sometimes I come across as like, I'm dogging on masterminds. I'm not dogging on masterminds. I get so much value out of that. Yeah. However, what it is, is it's a breeding ground for comparison. You show up and you look around and you're like, dang, Stephanie's crushing it. How do I get to her level of business? It's like, you don't have all the information, dude. Like, right. you don't know what she's done. You don't know what she's been through. You don't have all that information. You're just trapped. You're just trapped in this comparison loop. And so that has been something I've had to deal with, which like, you don't have that same business. And just because someone's doing 10 deals a month doesn't mean you're going to get there in a month. It also might be getting you further away from the things that you say you want. Somebody might, might choose to, you know, I think about Eric Brewer um, and I have a feeling that Eric does a lot of the things that he does on the, you know, he's got a pretty large operation, right? Yeah. His, motivations are probably very different from a lot of other people out there. Eric has 
a passion for influencing people, for affecting people's lives. He gets to do that through his role. I don't want that same business. Right. And, and it's not because I don't want to influence people and whatever. It's just, I have different goals. It's a matter of, you have to get clear on why do you own this business? Otherwise, when you show up and you start comparing yourselves to other people's businesses, you're just going to, it's an endless loop of fear. Like I got to catch up to something. I'm behind and I need to catch up. So you start making these decisions in your business. Let's double down on marketing. Let's hire that other salesperson. It's like, hold on. Right. Do we even have the data? Have you taken the time to collect the data or did you just show up to a mastermind? You got all jacked up and now you're like, we're going to double our, our business in the next year. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think it's critically important to know what you want. Like, right. What do you want? What is your ideal life? And what's amazing is if you, if you really articulate that, like the world will rise up and give you that. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. how what just speaking stuff into existence. Like it does it's crazy how it, that happens, you know? Um, but I think, I think masterminds can be incredibly valuable and, and were, especially for me in the beginning, because I had no clue what was possible. Like I, this was a brand new world for me. I had no idea what you could do. Like, I remember Justin Williams was my very first mentor and he did a hundred flips in a year. And I was like, why is he lying? What? You can, no one can do that. Like no one can do a hundred deals in a year. That's insane. No, like he could. Right. And then like, then I did, right. Because he even showed that it was possible uh, and what was possible did in the end influence what I wanted, but you have to be very steadfast in what it is you want, what your ideal life is, because like you said, everybody else has their own intentions and their own, their own goals. Right. right. And you don't, you can't, you can't possibly acquire those at the same time. So I think being very, very intentional, what you want um, will help you stay focused in those environments. And then just continuing to remind yourself that like their Instagram reality is not really reality. Right. And we all post and we all want to celebrate our wins because it feels so good. And we work so hard on the back end. Mm -hmm. um, but um, know that other people feel that way too. And that's all we see. All you see is the outside. Like you guys didn't see me working 16 hours a day for, you know, 10 years straight, literally, literally 16 hours a day for 10 years uh, before I got to this point where I'm like, I'm passively, I passively own companies. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like you don't see that part. Um, and I try to be as, as open as I possibly can about that journey because I want to normalize it. Um, I think you have to do the hard work to get to the point where you don't have to anymore. But then you also, in the meantime, have to be careful not to be addicted to that. Like, which was a big thing for me. Like I, I'm a workhorse. I will just mm -hmm. work. I had to be like, this is the end. This is, I've got what I want. What am I doing? You know what I'm saying? Um, and then draw the line. But yeah, you have to be yep. very those situations. Yeah. I mean, it's, you just got to be vigilant about understanding that there's context here, right? Yes. You have to consider the context. You can't just be like, Oh, I want, I want what she's want. Well, she has, it's like, you don't, you don't have context for everything. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's something I've had to deal with in the last year is recognizing like you're okay where you're at. We're not all trying to get the same thing and you can't get everything right? You got to optimize for what's most important for you. And that's going to look different for everybody. So what a fantastic conversation we've had. Um, I, I'm just, like I said, I, I look up to you a lot. I've, I've, I'm beyond impressed by what you've done, creating an actual tool to help you get closer to the things that you want. And that's helping me do the same and helping thousands of other people do it. So um, kudos to you. Well done. And um, uh, extremely excited to 
continue using Salesforce to build out my life and the things that I want. So <laughs> I got you. I'll help you. Awesome. Um, before we jump off, how can folks get a hold of you? How can they learn more about Left Main? How can they see what all the buzz is about? Sure. They can go to leftmainrei.com and you'll see a bunch of stuff in there. You can watch a demo, um, you know, talk to our team there. You want to reach out to me, you can too. Um, we have um, Left Main, at Left Main REI is our Instagram. And then my personal Instagram is at Steph Betters. Awesome. Awesome. Well, go check it out, everybody. Thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate you coming on today and uh, we'll see you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.